before we continue our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning as uh, your gathered people as part of our worship to acknowledge our great need moment by moment for your enabling grace to rest upon us, to enable us to know you more fully and to walk in righteousness and to worship you rightly. In and of ourselves, we have no capacity to know you, no capacity to obey you. We are weak and frail and we are prone to sin. It must be the indwelling spirit granting us the capacity to know you and to worship you. We confess our weakness. We confess our frailty. We confess our struggle with sin, this side of glory. And we come to trust you that you would um, hear us and strengthen us and give us grace to move forward and walk in righteousness, knowing that certainly in Christ, our sin debt is paid in full. Yet the struggle with sin, this side of glory, is real and moment-by-moment reality for us. So we come confessing our need, and we come confessing your majesty as our Lord, our King, our great God. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This morning we return to Acts chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 20. The title of this morning's message is Paul Testifies Concerning His Ministry. So if you will look with me there. Well, let's let's back up to 13 just to get a running start at our, at our verses this morning. So let me read beginning in verse 13 through verse 20. So look there with me. Acts chapter 20, verses 13. 20. But we were going ahead to a ship, to the ship set, excuse me. But we going ahead to the ship set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For he had arranged it and intending himself to go by land. And we know what he had in mind there from the last Lord's day. He desired to spend as much time at Tross as he could with the believers there. So he takes a little extra time and goes over by land. He's going to meet the delegates. There at Azos, and they'll they'll sail forward. Beginning in verse 14, then it says, And when he met us at Azos, we took him aboard and came to Midland. And sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Kisos, and the next day we crossed over to Samos. The day following, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided not to sit, had decided to sail past Ephesus. So that he would not have to spend time in Asia. He was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with triumphs came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable 
and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Now, Paul here might sound a little self-righteous, and so I don't want you to hold on. I don't want you to think that. So what we see here is Paul just being honest. He's being honest about his ministry, and, and it's always good to take a good, honest account of one's ministry. We all are ministers of the gospel. Paul is certainly in a unique setting uh, in the body of Christ. He has a unique role filled by uh, no other men. They were apostles of Christ, and then Paul is unique amongst the apostles of Christ. Primarily, he's point man to the Gentiles. So he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's in a narrow group of being apostles of Christ. And beyond that, he's the point man as apostle to the Gentiles. So he carries a unique role. Certainly, we understand that. Um, elders in the body of Christ carry a unique role and a primary teaching role. That is true. And yet all of us, all genuine blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ are called to be disciple makers. And all of us have a ministry. We all carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, it does us well to look here at Paul's unique role and his unique calling and how he speaks of it and understand that it relates to all of us because what we do have in common with Paul, uh, there may be a number of things, but one foundational thing that we do have in common with Paul, we are Christians as Paul was a Christian. And Paul gives us a good example here in kind of reviewing his ministry of what it means to take a cyst of our Christian walk, our Christian life as ministers. If you're here and you're a genuine blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives a cyst here, and he's not being arrogant. He's being honest. And here's how we hold that. Here's how I'll give you a little background up front that fits for all of us. And Paul certainly held this to be true. He honestly assessed his ministry here. It's going to be helpful for us. To, Paul kind of peels it back for us and the Ephesian elders that he's speaking directly to in this context. And lets us look at his ministry to them, to the church there that's now planted in Ephesus. How long did he spend there? That was, a, that was the longest time he spent on all three journeys in one place, right? Almost three years. Now he's going to call together the elders there. He's going to spend a little time with them as he, before he continues to sail on to Jerusalem. And he does so, uh, or he looks at his ministry, and he does so very candidly and very honestly. So I don't want you to think of as being arrogant here, but as being thorough. And that's, 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 we look at it as Paul looked at it, and that's over, we overlay our ministry and how we assess our ministry. We think about our ministry in terms of Paul and how we learn this morning about our ministry in light of Paul and his speaking to the elders here. And we do so knowing that all of our giftedness, all of our spiritual gifts collectively, and all of our calling and all of our capacity to tell truth comes from the grace of God. It's given to us. So our ministry capacity is given to us by God. Our responsibility is to redeem the time and to honestly assess ourselves. And so this is, for me, it was painful to do this study and it's painful to speak about it before you because I have a lot of ouch moments. And that's okay. That gives fuel for our prayer lives. So don't see it as arrogance. 
see it as an honest apostle of Christ laying himself open for the church. And now God preserving this for us all these years later to see and learn from because it's set upon this foundation. When we assess ourselves, if it is effective, then we need to see that, acknowledge that, and build upon it. Where there's where there's ineffective ministry, we need to come and pray and, and ask God for strength and try to tidy that up. And all of it, as we assess it, we assess and give glory to God because all ministry is made, is enabled by God's grace given to us. So God gets the glory for all ministry. And that's why Paul can look at this and assess it and be honest and say, hey, it's been effective. We're going to see this. Paul's ministry has been effective in Ephesus, but he gives God glory. Now, you're not going to find that in this immediate context, but when we put the wealth of Paul's writing concerning his ministry, all glory is given to God. So we hold that in the background here as we think about this. Paul is not being arrogant, but you're going to see a man assess an effective element of his life in ministry there in Ephesus. And it's good. It's healthy. And know that none of it comes from our own strength. It comes from God's enabling grace. That's how we must assess our own. And God does call us to be ministers. And here's how he equips us. Now, I don't know that this, you might add to the list, but I'm going to give you a foundation to think about God equipping you and your calling as a minister of the gospel and your work here on earth as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're equipped with spiritual gifts that granted you by God's grace. You're given an allotted amount of time on this terrestrial ball that God has created. It's set for you. He's set your boundaries. He's placed you where you are, and he's given you a certain amount of time. That's a gift, but you're accountable for it. So part of your equipping is time. Your responsibility is to redeem it. And he's given you open doors. I don't know. There may be a better way to phrase that, but I mean, he's given you uh, in your ministry. God will give you opportunities to minister that he um, prepares circumstances and consequences of life that he navigates sovereignly for you to minister within. All these things are a foundation of ministry for all genuine followers of Christ. God is sovereign. He has set the bounds of your life. And within that, you have a responsibility to minister to his glory. So he's called us to minister and he's called us to minister uh, in his power and his authority rather than the frailty of our flesh. Right. Rather than the frailty of our flesh. Depend upon him. He can accomplish the ministry that he has placed in your responsibility, that he's laid upon you, that he's given to you, he can accomplish it to his glory and your spiritual good. You cannot in and of your own strength. He's given you a ministry to accomplish, and he's giving you uh, the command to do so in his strength and his enabling grace rather than the frailty of your flesh. So what's our role? Our role is to be obedient. You're going to see an obedient apostle here, and it's good for us to be reminded of that. Paul's been obedient. He can speak to his ministry here in a very healthy way, and he can do so for one foundational, scriptural, uh, spiritual reason. He's been obedient. You're going to see a healthy ministry in Ephesus and, and an apostle in a unique role. Look back on it, reflect on it in a very healthy way, and he can do so for one simple reason. He's been obedient.
Our role is to be obedient, and our role is to give effort. Now, what I mean by that, he's given you time, right? He's set the boundaries of your life, right? So by what I mean by effort is redeem the time. When I say effort, I'm defining that by this. Redeem the time. Redeem the time. It's short. It's a whisper in the big picture, and you're responsible for redeeming it. And then exercise your gifts. God has given them to you. Exercise your spiritual gifting in the body of Christ. And as it extends to opportunities to carry the gospel out into a lost world. Peter really touched well on this. Uh, he spoke to this aspect well. Uh, let's listen to Peter here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Listen to the language here. If you address the Father as the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time that you stay on earth. In other words, redeem the time. 1 Peter 4, 2, same concept. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So we're here to maximize, if you will. Our purpose of being here as followers of Jesus Christ is to maximize. Our time here. Maximize our time to serve the Lord. And that's the pattern that Paul sets for us in Christian ministry. Maximize your time. Remember, we're all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not all are called to be elders. Not all are called to serve as uh, pioneer missionaries. Where the gospel has not yet been, uh, uh, the gospel has yet to be taken into certain communities, into certain cultures and certain ethnicities we're not all called to these roles but we're all called to be ministers of the gospel of jesus christ in our context <coughs> our boundaries which was he has placed us sovereignly in our time so we're ministers of the gospel of jesus christ that's why when 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 paul writes to timothy as an elder of a church, he's not, he's writing to Timothy, but Timothy is that example to the church. Is it Timothy, you live this way and you carry this out as a in a specific role in a specific body of Christ. But the whole point is that the body of Christ would likewise live. And so when we come to language that we find in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it's not just for Timothy only. It's for Timothy as example, right? Listen to Paul as he encourages young Timothy and his ministry as an elder. But you, Timothy, yes, as example, you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And likewise, Timothy can say that as point man in that local gathered body and say, you do as I do, brother and sister. Colossians 4, 17. Now, Paul is going to speak at the very end of chapter 4 in Colossians about an understudy, Archippus. And listen to what he says to him. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, how condensed and sweet that is. Take heed of your ministry, brother and sister. Why? That you may fulfill it. Not that you may wonder about it. Not that you may... Uh, uh, Analyze it to death, not that you may uh, regret it, not that you may want to change it, not that you may want to tweak it, but you may fulfill it. You've been given a call by God, you've been given spiritual gifts, you've been given a ministry, you've been given a context, you've been given time. 
Now your responsibility is to fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. So that brings us to our first point here. And I only have two. And they well balanced. No, they're not. They're heavy loaded up front. So just deal with it. Okay. Give me, give me an F for the preaching class. Let's go to the first one. Paul ministered with humility. Verses 14 through 19. Look there again with me. So we get a little context here at first in verses 14 and 15. A little background. And again, we know they're traveling. So they're traveling. They're, they're skirting the coastline of what now is modern day Turkey. What we're understanding here in context is Asia Minor. And Paul's been in Asia Minor uh, uh, to the east and across the western side of the Aegean Sea. Paul has traveled into Europe, right? And Paul and his, uh, uh, his cohort has planted churches in both sides of the Aegean Sea. Uh, and, and part of the world that sets above the Mediterranean, strings across the whole Mediterranean. You're looking at Europe and Turkey in our modern context. And so now he's headed back to Jerusalem to take up the monetary offering that he's gathered from churches in both Asia Minor and Europe, churches that they planted. He's taken up a monetary fund to bring back to the Jerusalem church because they are in need. So they're suffering monetarily, except through a drought, except through a number of issues, and they're they're lacking, they're in need. So he's gathered funds and he's taking this gift, this love offering, we might call it, back to the church in Jerusalem. And part of doing that is, is practical, but part of it is making this bond, helping create this bond between Jew and Gentile. So there is that, so that dividing wall has continued to be broken down, and then the body of Christ has continued to be unified where there is no Jew nor Greek, there is brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's part of this, this goal that Paul has, and he is dogmatic about this journey. So he's wanting to make it back to Jerusalem. But yet he's going to travel through and uh, just revisit the churches as he's been there, as he's collecting the money. So he'll go back through. He's, he's in Asia Minor now, and he's going to skirt the coast. He's going to go south. And so he's catching a couple of little islands off the mainland. In verse 16, it tells us that ultimately he's going to decide to go past uh, um, the church there in Ephesus. So Ephesus is, is inland a little bit, about 30 miles inland, a little, a little more, and right off the coast, and then some of these islands off the coast. So where they, where they settle in at Miletus, and that's south and about 30 miles out from Ephesus. So it's a little journey to get the elders out to him, but he's not going to go inland. Because if he went back to Ephesus, he wouldn't stay for a little while. He just couldn't help himself. He would stay and he would spend time and he would be with them and he would preach and he would, and he just, he would uh, he'd get off track in terms of making it back to Jerusalem when he wants to. Now, when does he want to get back to Jerusalem? He has a date now. He has a time frame. He wants to get there at a certain time. Do you remember what it is? Pentecost. He want, originally wanted Passover. That didn't happen. So now he's shooting for Pentecost, which actually, uh, in a real cool way, could even be better. So his original thought was Passover. Uh, that uh, his plans were changed, and uh, to circumstances not of his own. But now he's hoping for Pentecost, right? So Pentecost puts us in May. 
and we're looking about AD 57 for the time frame. Now, something really cool here. He wants to get back to Pentecost, and this would be really cool because this Pentecost would be the 25th anniversary of the Pentecost of the Spirit of God poured out his spirit in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ. So he would get back and take this love offering from these number of churches in the Gentile world where he has collected monetary funds to aid the church there in Jerusalem. And there would be this wonderful, beautiful bonding of the Gentile and, and, and Jewish church where they're helping to understand we're one church now. And it would come 25 years later or 25 years after to that Pentecost, the Pentecost where the spirit fell upon the church there in Jerusalem. So it's a pretty cool reality. And that's what he's shooting for. So to go into Ephesus, he knows himself. He's like, man, I can't do that. But what he does while he's there, while they're kind of skirting the, coast, the, the, the coastline there, is he, he, he sends for the elders there at Ephesus to be brought to him. And so at least he's going to spend some time with the elders and he's going to pour into them a little bit before he has to continue on to try to stay on track, to make it back um, there to, to uh, Jerusalem in a proper time to try to make it for Pentecost. And so in verse 17, he's at Miletus and he calls for the elders of the church there at Ephesus. And it's really going to be his farewell. He's not going to see him again. This is going to be the last time they spend together. So this is the last uh, time he has to speak with them. Now Luke's present here. So Luke gives us a little, you know, he gives, he's going to give us a little nutshell of what was said. This is not all that Paul said to them because this is the last time he's going to spend with them. So he said more than this, but Paul, I mean, excuse me, Luke gives us kind of the nutshell version. This is the key aspects of what he said. So it's condensed, of course, but um, he's given us the real fruit of the message, the real heartbeat of the message that he gives the encouragement he gives these elders as he sends, as he says, farewell, never going to see them again. So Paul's personally groomed this group. Three years he was there, right? Important these men, he personally groomed these guys. So what happened at Ephesus? It's the same thing that happened elsewhere as best Paul could manage it. He didn't have as much time other places he had at Ephesus. But what we see here at the heart of this is Paul grooms his own leaders. He grooms the leaders from within, right? Paul didn't take guys. Now, he left some of his guys at other places to minister as he had to move on. And part of that was not because he wanted to. He was in a hurry. It's because he was running for his life. If he could have stayed and ministered longer, he would have. But he left guys where he could to continue to minister. But what were they doing? They were grooming men from within to be there and lead the church. So one encouragement. Build your own leadership. Be like Paul. Build your own leadership where you're ministering. Wherever you're ministering, build your own leadership. So that's why we have a number of men here teaching and preaching. We try to get uh, as much men as we can teaching and preaching. We have ladies leading one another and ladies teaching ladies. And we have moms and dads teaching our children. And by the way, parents, dads, particularly you, who are the primary disciple makers of your children? You are. It's you. It's not me. It's you. 
You're the primary disciple makers of your children. Now, we're, we're in here, and, and some of us, by God's grace, have regenerate children. Some of us do not. We're praying that God will save them. But we're still making disciples of them, are we not? In anticipation of the mercy and grace of God. So we are the primary disciple makers of our children. And as a body of Christ, we're committed to this. At Word of Grace, we're committed to building our own leadership. We see that practice in Scripture, and we're trying to take that up ourselves, to build from within. Build your own leaders. Be like Paul. Build up your own men. Grow them. How do we do that? Well, by teaching. That's primarily the way Paul did it, by teaching. So it says here he gathered the elders up, so, um, and he brought them there. And the word elders that comes to us here in verse 17 is Episcopal. That just means spiritually mature men. Episcopal, the word itself, just means mature, older. That's all it means. In context here, it means spiritually mature men. So these are the men that he that he has placed there as elders are the men that fit into that role are men who are spiritually mature. So we're trying to build up more spiritually mature men because what is the goal? We have men in place at the local church here. Ephesus local church have men in place who were elders, Episcopal, mature men. We know that we're talking in spiritual context. They're spiritually mature men. There are men that fill that role. They must be spiritually mature. But what is our goal? There will be a number of men that fill the role of eldership, a plurality of elders in the local church. But what is our goal? What does Timothy do? What's his goal? Not everyone is going to serve as an elder at the, at the gathered church, at the visible church. But we want the character of every man to be that fit for being an elder, right? We want the spiritual maturity to be there. And we certainly want the spiritual maturity of every woman to be that of being a mature woman that could bring, that could bring along the younger women in the faith, don't we? And then we want that reproduced, right? So that's the goal. That's what they're after here. So he's brought these men, and that's the standard. And by the way, if you would look on down in verse 28, elders are referred to again, and there they're referred to in the term that translates elder is episcopal. Now, that means overseer. So if we just take these two words for a moment, just to have a little, a little time of instruction now, well, your elders are men who are spiritually mature, and they oversee the church. Now, it's not given in this context, but since the word's here, let me just say, those two fit together to make this reality. You're looking for mature, spiritually mature men who oversee the church by example. Not with a heavy hand, not with arrogance, uh, not with self-righteousness, not with a, not an authoritarian kind of uh, attitude, or a totalitarian kind of attitude, my way or the highway, but by example. And we're going to see from Paul here, key foundational to that example is humility so show me a heavy-handed arrogant elder and i'll show you an elder who is failing to lead the flock now all elders have shortcomings we all have blind spots we all have weaknesses that is true but some seem more glaring than the one that is most obvious that should be most obvious elders should lead by example. And arrogance is a killer in the church. Pride is a killer in the church. 
Give me a bumbling, humble elder. I'll take over a self-assured, arrogant man. I don't care how good it looks on the surface. Because, oh, they look so good for a while. Oh, they look so good. Give me the humble guy. Give me the humble guy. And we'll work them up. It's a body of Christ. We're in it together. I, you know, watch for the arrogance in the body of Christ. It's a killer. Pride is a killer. And that brings us here to verse 18. And Paul's going to lay a few of these things out for them. He says, then when I came to, uh, excuse, me, <coughs> excuse me, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, in verse 19, serving the Lord with humility. Now we'll stop right there. Okay, a couple of things that just jump out at us. Paul's being honest here. Now, this is again, it's not just arrogance. Paul's being honest. I was there and I was with you. So he spent three years with them. Now, I don't know all the intimacies of their settings, and we can talk about that. You know, we always talk about it's, it's uh, the more time we have together, the better. And those things are true. Sometimes together are more fruitful than others. Um there's always context there. But Paul, Paul was with them. In other words, we know he was in Ephesus and he stayed there three years. That's the biggest deal. And the time he spent there, Paul, Paul spent teaching. There's edification. We've been talking about this this morning. There's edification, healthy edification, good conversations that can go on without necessarily uh, a, a construct of teaching. But that's not what Paul was doing. So in other words, visitation is not a bad thing. But you're not seeing Paul in visitation here when he talks about house to house. He specifically teaching what did he do uh there when he was uh, when he was at, uh, on tyrannus's facility what did he do hour after hour he taught them and he went to the when he wasn't working and he went to the houses what was he doing he was teaching so it was understood we're not going to come there and just do some things and have some conversations which is fine and healthy and good don't get me wrong but that's not primarily what paul's talking about here he came to teach when he went house to house, he sat down and it was formal in that sense. They talked or he talked. So that's what's going on. That's what Paul's communicating here. And so he was with them three years and the foundation of this was his teaching. He did other things. What do we do, man? We, we teach the Bible. We sing the Bible. We pray the Bible. He did all those things. He was praying with them. He was singing with them. He was having conversations with them. They had time to socialize, but he was teaching. And that should be foundational for us. If teaching is not there in the central part of our lives as disciple makers, then we're off track a bit. And we do well to learn from Paul here. And so he's with them, at least we can say on a regular basis, specifically teaching them. It's the center of discipleship. So the center of disciple making is teaching. So is every Christian to be a teacher? Yes. It doesn't matter where you are in the Christian life. You're at, at, at your, where you are as a Christian, you're at that point called to be a disciple maker. And if you're going to be a disciple maker, you're going to by nature teach. <laughs> now, certainly that means that you don't, that doesn't mean that you go off on your own. And start developing your own doctrine. No, that's why you're gathered in a local body to be edified and encouraged. That's why God has placed elders over you to teach you and to lead by example. And that you have other brothers and sisters to help teach and lead by example. And mature believers that are teaching and pouring into your life and leading by example. But 
by nature, you are to be a teacher. If you're to, you're to disciple and to make disciples, and core and foundational to that is teaching. So we're always learning. We're always coming and we're always sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word. Why? So we can just sit on it and huddle it up for ourselves and do the theological navel picking? No, so that we can go forth and make disciples. So that's the heart, the central to disciple making, teaching. If we're going to be disciple makers, we must be teachers across the board. Now it's just a matter we're going to be good teachers or really bad teachers. Really bad teachers, theologically, are dangerous. Application, note to self, don't be a bad teacher. Be a teacher. Don't be a bad teacher. That takes humility and diligence and work. Put in the time. Pray for humility and strive to be a good teacher. So if we're going to do this, we must be good teachers. And I want you to notice this. Here's how we start. We start just where Paul starts. It's with recognition of who we are in Christ. Notice in verse 19 what Paul says. Look, I serve with I serve you, Ephesian elders. Well, yes, in a way, that's true. You, church there at Ephesus, that I was a part of planting. You, church there at Ephesus, that I poured three years of my life into. That's not where he starts. Is that true? It's true. That's not where he starts. Where does he start? His mindset. Look at his heart. Look at where part, how Paul understands this. I was in Ephesus. My three missionary journeys from Asia to Europe hounded all over both sides of the Aegean Sea with my life on the line, beaten to a pulp time and time again. Planting churches all over the place. Three years in this local in, in, in this local church here. Three years with them. And what's the first thing he says? The place he spent the most time. Where does he go? I serve the Lord. See how he gets it? I serve the Lord. So Paul understands ministry rightly. His primary goal, his first intent of his heart, his first notion of what it means to serve in ministry and minister is to do it unto the Lord. He has an audience of one primarily. Does everybody else matter? Does he love the Ephesians? Of course he does. It's, un, it's undeniable to see the man's heart for them in ministry. It's good for us to see. But look where he starts. He starts at the right place. Everything about what he did in serving and ministering to the Ephesians was, was, placed, was based upon this one primary foundational premise. I'm serving the Lord here. That's how, he, that's how he nails it down. Everywhere he goes, everywhere he ministers, whatever context is in, it's with this premise. What I'm doing here to benefit these people is done primarily in service to the Lord. I have an audience of one primarily. And by the way, if that's, that's, that's the place to start. That's, how we, that's where we must start. That's where we must dig our heels in. And that's where we must stay. But So then when the wolves come along, we're on good ground. Then when it gets tough, we're on good ground. Because if you understand it as serving the Lord, then you can take the heat, right? When you understand it as service unto the Lord, then when they're not so nice to you, did that happen? 
when they're not so nice to you, then you don't still pack up and leave. Because your service there is first and foremost unto the Lord. Then when, when trouble comes from the outside, you think, no, it's too dangerous, man. It's just not worth it. I'm not seeing enough. I'm not seeing enough fruit from this ministry. Then you don't make bad decisions at those moments because your service is primarily to the Lord. That's how you spiritually dig your heels in and stay the course. If you don't first, if you don't see it as your service unto the Lord, primarily you'll take up and flee at the first dust up. You'll find a reason to blame somebody else too. You'll never blame yourself. You might get around that later after the Lord works on you, but you won't when you leave. Are you back down? Are you compromise? Are you do things to try to to try to uh, um, make appeal? For numbers or comfort or ease. The only way you can do the hard ministry of carrying the gospel is to know that your primary purpose is to serve the Lord. And then a beautiful uh, love and joy extends to those you're serving. That's natural. But that's not going to carry you through the hard times. What carries you through the hard times is a clear understanding of you are here first and foremost to serve your God in the ministry that he's given you and that he's equipped you for. And that extends from the apostles of Christ all the way down to the youngest believer in Jesus Christ in any visible setting. Same call. Not the same context. Not the same role. Same general call. We are to be disciple makers of Jesus Christ. We're to minister first and foremost to Christ, to his glory, and to the good of the church. So his first point is at Christ. But then next he does point to the church because that's the bride of Christ, right? That's the body of Christ. That's, that's God's people gathered in Christ. That's those who have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. The church is those out of all of creation that Christ has bought with his atoning blood. Those are the people that Christ has died for in his fleshly body. God, the second person of the triune God who has come down and taken upon flesh, lived a perfect life under the law of God the Father, righteous under the law, goes and dies a sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death on the cross for all those who repent and believe on him. They're the unique God, man, eternally satisfying the wrath of the Father and uniting himself to fallen man. The only person that can do that, the unique God, man. And there he purchased a people for himself. There he purchased the church, the bride of Christ, a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. That is his bride that he has purchased with his own blood. And so we being the body also Love the body. For Christ loves the body. Christ loves the church. And so it's a service unto the Lord. Galatians 1.10. For I am now, for I am now, uh, excuse me. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? That's your question. Paul answered it definitively. We must also. That's the question every time. Am I looking to serve men or am I looking to serve God? Am I looking to serve God or am I striving to please men? And here's his answer. He gave, he gets to the Galatians there. If I were still trying to please men, would I not be a, I, 
I would not be a bondservant to Christ. She said, I'm a slave to Christ. Christ's agenda for me is my agenda. I'm a slave to Christ. Bondservant is just a nice kind of modern Philly word for slave. He's my Lord. And what he says for me is what I do. I'm enslaved to him. And we've had lots of talk in our modern context about the evils of slavery and rightly so. Um, the spill out of some of that is, is heinous in itself and how the twisting of that. But we can at least say at a baseline without getting off on a tangent here. Certainly all the, 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 the all of the propensity of, of scripture would tell us that slavery is wrong. But then it's a beautiful picture to understand the, the reality of who we are in Christ. That is accurate. We are slaves to Christ. If you're here as a follower of Christ, you're a slave to Christ. But what that means to us is we, are t- we totally belong to a perfect, glorious, holy master. And nothing could be more liberating and loving and beautiful than that. But we're nonetheless slaves. And Paul says it outrightly. I'm a slave to Christ. Man, if I were trying to please men, I wouldn't be a slave to Christ. That's what he was telling the Galatians. Look, it's been pillar to post for me. You know, I've been threatened. I've been beaten. I've suffered physically. And I've anguished in my heart. And I wouldn't do it. If I was trying to be a pleaser of men, it would be much it would be a much easier course if I were trying to please men. He says, look at me. Look at, look at what I've been through. Just look at this. You think I'm trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not have suffered what I've suffered. That's what he's saying. But I'm not. I'm striving to please my Lord, for he is indeed my master. And he is worthy of my worship and he's worthy of our worship. So what are we to do? We're to obey God and we're to trust God with the circumstances. The circumstances belong to God. That's not our concern. We're to trust God and we're to obey. And so here he sees Christ primarily as the focus of his ministry. And out of that overflow of the focus of his ministry in Christ is a love for the church. And here we see that played out. He says, I've, I've served the Lord with all humility and with tears. Now that's going to point now the attention to his service to the church. It starts with his love for Christ and his service to Christ. And that's an overflow in service to the body of Christ, to the church. And notice how, that, how that's lived out. Notice how that's exercised. It's exercised in humility and with tears. That reality stems from his desire to honor his Lord. I serve, what I do, I do primarily for the honor of Christ. And as I do it for the honor of Christ, it flows out in a, in a humble service with tears and anguish for the body of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.15 Again, Timothy, certainly certainly to Timothy directly, but that character is supposed to flow out into the body of Christ there. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Why? Accurately handling the word of truth. And so when we think about 
ministering in all humility. We think about it as being a servant. And that's exactly what Paul had. Paul had a servant's heart. He had a servant's spirit. So it wasn't just lip service for Paul, but it's founded upon this reality. He was a man who was settled in on ministering through the truth of God's word. He was settled in on it. And so he does so with humility because he has a foundation. That's the truth of God's word. How are we to present ourselves approved to God as workmen? Paul's talking about that. Look, I'm humble. My ministry is humble before you. I don't want to see myself approved by God because my first, the, the first inkling of my desire in ministry is to minister in a way that is honoring to my Lord. I want to be approved. I want to be seen by God as a good workman. I don't want to be ashamed. And we need to feel the same way. Now, how does that happen? We accurately let God take care of the circumstances. We redeem the time by accurately handling the word of God. You know what that'll do for you? Sure, we're all a work in progress. As I say this, I realize my, I, I could count, I could rattle off a hundred shortcomings right now. But this is, this is our heartbeat. This is our desire. This is where we're going. As we minister, we accurately minister the word of God. And that humbles us. You know what's going to humble you? Sure, brothers and sisters, we're to do that. We just talked about that. Scripture tells us when there needs to be rebuke, we need to rebuke one another. For the, for the, for the point of encouraging one another, restoring another, teaching one another, admonishing one another, and then bringing one another along in Scripture. But the Scripture itself is the means through which we are humble. We're looking to be humble in ministry as we see evidence by Paul here, as we see as good and right for us and meaningful and effective. Then we must saturate ourselves in the word of God. The word of God brings us to humility. Didn't you have that this week? Am I the only one? I had it this week. You just get there, you know, and you're just ready to like a, I've got to have something really fruitful and meaningful and powerful to say. And then you're just working your way through your normal reading of Scripture. And they're, oh, ooh, oh. All your pride is just laid out before you. Right? Am I the only one? All of us just laid out there, oh, oh, oh. And I'm like, no, Lord, I'm up here trying to work on this sermon. You know, I don't, I don't need all this refining on my sin. Oh. It always happens, doesn't it? Look, again, I can't say this enough. So hear this in application. Pride. Pride is a plague on the church. It's a blight. It's a cancerous plague on the church, and it will eat her up. It's a tool of your great enemy, Satan, and he will wield it against you to eat you up. Humility is a fruit of the Spirit of God working in His people. And it is evident, and it has a sweet aroma. I worked for many years in a hospital, and I also served some time there as a, as a chaplain, as a minister, as a minister in the hospital. There's kind of a dual role at times. And cancer has a stench, doesn't it? And let's just be honest. Pride. Have a stench. We do not need to get comfortable with the smell. Exercise it from our lives. 
kiss, kills. It's humility that marks off the believer as being diligent and fruitful. It's humility. And Paul says that's exactly how I ministered. And it's okay to say it if it's true. Because that's the old saying. It, well, it's not bragging if it's true. And the only way that we understand it to be true is that it's given to us by God. God grants us humility. Are we to exercise it? Are we responsible? Yes. But are we always coming back and giving God glory for making us humble and refining us and working us? And where we are frail and where we are weak and where we're full of pride, we're begging God to exercise it from our lives that we might give him glory and praise as humble followers of Christ. That's where we're living. God gets the glory and building us up as a body of Christ. God gets the glory and building us up as disciples who are disciple makers. As we see evidence here in Paul, we take the example from Paul and ask God to apply these truths to our lives as well. Any blessing we receive comes to us from our Lord, right? Anyone. We have to stay there. There we're on good ground. Our gifts are given to us by God. Now, one, let me encourage you as your brother, exercise them. If you're not even sure you have one, if you're not even sure what it is, beg God to clarify that for you and exercise it. First Corinthians 4, 7. This is Paul speaking to the, to the Corinthians in their areas. This is what we would look at this morning, Brother Jesse. You're going to see this is reproof right here. So we're going to see a little reproof from Paul in humility with kindness and love for the body of Christ there. You regard yourself as superior? Question mark. What do you have that you did not receive? Ouch. That's the answer always for us. Any circumstance of life, there's your answer. Anytime you come across that, I'll show them. Who do you think they can talk to me that way? Who think they are? Oh, they don't know what I've gone through. They don't know what I live with. All that stuff. Here's the answer to all that. Here's the answer. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast if you had not received it? Oh my goodness. We have nothing to boast about. All that we have is gifted to us by our Savior. And it's for our means of glorifying Him, for His glory and our building ourselves up in spiritual good. All that we have is given to us by Christ. That's humbling, isn't it? That's humbling. Humility must be present in our ministry. We can have all the theology in the world. Man, we can have it in spades. We have uh, those, those acute minds that can just connect all the dots, have all the right answers. They will have no power. They will have no fruit. They will have no true and lasting meaning in the body of Christ or the culture around you if there is no humility. It must be present in our ministry or we're dead in the water. Paul had it. Because he had the priorities right. I'm serving God, and that overflows in my love for the church and how I carry the gospel out into the world. And I know that any evidence of fruitfulness within that ministry that God has given me is, is a, just that, a gift of God. 
and I give him praise for it and glory for it. Second Corinthians 3.5. Back on the Corinthians again. Not that we were adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Amen. We want to be adequate. We do. But in being adequate, first and foremost, we must know that adequacy is from God. It's okay, Paul. Paul understands he's adequate here. He's telling the elders there in Ephesus, look, am I minister to you? Am I minister to the other brothers and sisters that I've been adequate? That's okay to say. He's telling them. What I've told you is good. How I've ministered to you, the way I've, to- the way I've told you, the way I've carried myself with you, what I've taught you is good. It's but here's what Paul always reminds us of. It's adequate because God, God made it adequate. Our responsibility is to be faithful and redeem the time. God makes it adequate. So be content. Be content in your ministry. Be content and be obedient. Strive to be adequate. So we're inadequate in our own strength. We're adequate when we rest in God's power. Humility is our basic service to our King, the Lord Jesus. It's our basic service, that we are humble, that we strive and ask God to make us humble. He continues on there in verse 19, and he says, also in addition to ministering them uh, uh, in, in humility, he did also in tears. And he goes on now, if we look at verse 31, uh, we, we see a little example of that in this chapter, in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, we see that he says to them there, therefore, uh, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish there again, they rebuke and teach each one of you with tears. So, again, here's the overflow of this service that's been a gift to him from God, and he's pouring it out into these believers. This, this local body, and now he's edifying the, the elders of this church. And by the way, this little context here, out on Miletus, is the only time in Acts that we see Paul speaking clearly just to a group of believers. Now, certainly he speaks to churches and, 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 and you know, he speaks in evangelism. So there may be a mixture there. Here's this one little unique setting. And, of course, we don't get all of what he has said. Luke's there. He kind of gives us the nutshell. But this is elders and the delegates, the guys that are representing all the churches. That's been planted in Asia Minor and, and Europe. So it's a, a unique little setting, and it's to save men. And by the way, there's one, just, just for a little note reminder here, kind of a, a pause line. There's a little, well, I can't be definitive on this, but these men are representatives from all the churches, Asia Minor and Europe. And they're all going to go to Jerusalem and, and, and just to show the love and support. Corinth does not have a representative. You remember there was a dust up there over this offering. And Paul went to great lengths and finally went there himself and straightened everything out. And he's, you know, and he received an offering from Corinth as well. I believe, this is my belief, that again, I can't be definitive, that Paul goes to represent Corinth himself. Because there was such a hard work there. And we know the letters, we have the letters um, and Paul, they were reconciled. And there was a beautiful time there between the church at Corinth and Paul. And Paul actually went there in person and gathered that, that offering up himself. And I believe he intends to represent them uniquely 
there at Jerusalem as one of the representatives for all the other churches. So I firmly believe that. Uh, can't be definitive, but they certainly don't have anyone from Corinth. And uh, it's interesting to think that Paul might be that guy. Nonetheless, it's with tears that he ministers. And so here's what I want you to think about. The man had empathy for others. He could relate to them. So Paul had a, a he had a super intellect, right? I mean, the guy was a genius, brilliant mind, <coughs> scholarly mind. I mean, just a, a you know, lawyer that could connect all the dots. Boom, 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 right down the line. But Paul's not a loop, he's not an ivory tower guy. He's down there in the dirt, nitty-gritty, taking his time with the people. Not just hanging out, he's ministering, he's teaching. And he's doing so with tears because he can relate to them. He relates to them. He is engaged with them. He's not aloof. He's engaged. And this is what drives him. Because he says, that first of all, his service to love. This is what drives him. God being dishonored. That's what breaks his heart. That's where he starts. That's where we have to start. Now, the empathy pours, pours out to the person in their circumstances, in their response, in their confusion and their weakness and their frailty and their sin, it pours out to them. And that's real and genuine. And you can't make that up. It's either there and you have an empathy or not. But it rightly stems from you having a broken heart for God's name. That you're broken over their sinfulness and their lostness and their darkness because it dishonors God. That's where it starts for us. That's how we have an answer. That's how we have a reason to minister. That's how it doesn't just come some, it doesn't just become some kind of spiritualized psychology. That's what keeps it the gospel. Rather than just here's four approaches to life and some God talk. See if it makes you better. That's why we have one answer for a broken and fallen world. It's the gospel. God is central to that reality. But about this identifying, about this empathy, here's what Francis Schaeffer said, and I believe this is exactly how Paul ministered in this way. If we speak truth that hurts, and Paul certainly did, if we speak truth that hurts, it must be with tears. So the arrogance is removed when our hearts are broken for those who dishonor God. The arrogance the selfishness, the self-righteousness, the, the impatience. Man, that's a tough one, isn't it? The impatience. Why, why don't they get that? Why don't they get it? I said it so clearly. I said it three times. Why don't they get it? Well, say it again. Say it again. And if it hurts, say it with tears. Be empathetic. Well, how do we conjure up empathy? Well, we can't. It comes from seeing our service first being to God and then our brokenness being over God's name being dishonored. And from there, there is genuine love and affection to those with whom you minister. Now, is that magic? No. We live that out fully all the time? No, but that's the standard. That's, the, that's what we're striving for. That's what we're praying for. So was Paul effective because of his preaching? Well, yes, he was effective because of his preaching. Yes, 
He was an excellent preacher. Now, he wasn't a great orator. He admits that himself. But his preaching was true and powerful. And the dots were connected. He's a systematic guy. He made sense of it all. He was a big picture guy. He could fill in all the details. And he was like, he was like when Paul was teaching, it wasn't glorious. And he wasn't the great orator. But he's like, oh, oh, ah, ooh, ah, yes. I mean, he could bring you along. He could make the complex things, seemingly complex things, very simple. Most of all, he preached the truth. He understood he was preaching God's word. So, of course, it was because of his preaching. But I'm going to tell you something. Paul's empathy, his empathy for people had much to do with the effectiveness of his ministry. That simple reality that he was genuinely empathetic towards them. He cared about them. He cared about their broken hearts. It broke his heart that their sinfulness was an affront to a holy God and cared for them. He also mentions trials there. And we know that his ministry was hounded by the Jewish leaders. They tracked him all over Europe and Asia trying to kill him. And here just just prior to to taking sail to, to get from Europe over, from Philippi over, there was a plot to kill him, right, on the boat. So he had to wait and change plans there because he found out about the plot. So he's constantly in danger, primarily from Jewish leadership. And they've hounded him uh, from pillar to post again. So he mentions that here. That as he ministers in tears, he also ministers with trials that came upon him through the plots of the Jews. First Corinthians 15.30 says this when we think about that. There's tears. There should be anguish in our heart. And there's trials. There's external realities that are not conducive to easy life in ministry. Well, listen to 1 Corinthians 15.30. He says this about his ministry. As he's telling the Corinthians, he basically says that uh, we were in danger. And he is, Paul describes it. And I don't believe he's, he's being, this is hyperbole. Every hour. So, Literally every hour, but there was every hour there's a dread over his ministry endeavor, a dread of his life being in danger. It could be life-threatening at any moment. So that's a weight. It's a heavy weight that people are after you, looking to kill you, and they have resources. That's where, that's how Paul ministered. He ministered with this overlooming reality that there is an influential people that know people, that have the means to have you killed. They can find you. That's the context. And so he says every hour. In other words, it could be imminent. And he ministered with that weight. So for us, as we think about that, that may not be our immediate circumstance. But here's the heart of it that we must hold to and pray for. To be humble in ministry and to be willing to suffer. Those are the two. To strive for God to give us strength, to pray for strength, enabling grace, to be humble and to pray for courage and capacity, be willing to suffer. Now, by suffer, I mean this. Suffer internal anguish where your heart is just constantly broken. It's just broken of the losses of people. And the affront to God's name is just broken constantly. And. Willingness to suffer external dangers. So internal and external. Humility and a willingness just to suffer that anguish of the heart that just is the reality of Christian ministry. 
you're here as a Christian. You're called to ministry. And part of your ministry is just an anguish of your heart. Or you just check that. If you're just in watching or playing on the internet or whatever we might be doing these days, or you're worried about being some kind of super patriot or whatever, look, or if you woke, God help you. What we're called to have is a heart to serve our God in ministry, and it causes anguish. You're not going to get out from that. If you're ministering, you're going to have anguish. Heart's going to ache. And also, you're going to have to be willing to suffer some external trials. That's not been very apparent. It's been apparent all throughout Christianity. Not so much in our current climate. Not so much in our current context. But don't call me a prophet. Let me say this, though. They might start taking your stuff even here. So may come home to roost. May not. But doesn't you're an anomaly. Because it does for every Christian group and every uh, part of the world and every generation. Except for us in North America. So be thankful. But that may not last. You're going to have to deal with some external trials. I don't know what form they'll come in, but there must be a willingness to accept this as part of God's sovereign plan for your life as his child. If it comes to you, it comes to you through his sovereign hand, right? That's how you deal with it. It's an intention of God for you and your life as his child in your ministry for what? To just beat you down and destroy you and hand you over to the enemy of your soul? No, for what? For his glory and your good, your spiritual health. Yeah. You mean God has to use some hard stuff sometimes to just make me uh, spiritually mature? Yes. Yes. We have to see it that way. It's for our good. And really, this is a sub-point to my one point. But I made it too, so it would sound better. But it's sub-point. Paul ministered with diligence. All this, we see diligence in this. So it's, it's one point with an A, but I made it too. That's what I said. Take me class on the teaching, you know, on the teaching course. I don't really care. I want you to hear scriptural truth. Paul ministered with diligence. Here's the point. How I did not shriek from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. He says, I had nothing back. I laid it all out there for you. And the chief focus of Paul's ministry was what? To teach and preach scripture. That was central. It's central for you. Wherever you are in the body of Christ, whatever your role is, and you have a role and you have a ministry, it's always going to be central. Always central to that ministry is going to be your teaching of the word of God. You're handling the word of God and pouring that out in someone else's life. That's always going to be true for every Christian. Again, we have different roles. I'm not saying we all are called to be elders. Of course not. I'm not saying that. But if you're a genuine Christian, if you're a true Christian, part of your Christian ministry, foundational part of your Christian ministry is that you take God's truth and you pour it into other people's lives. That's teaching. Be diligent with it. Redeem the time. Be a diligent teacher of scripture. That's part of being uh, what, it, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. So Paul demonstrates his love for the church by diligently teaching and applying to That's how he shows his love. Now there's a myriad of ways to show love, so I'm not trying to 
you know, to condemn any of that or any of your notions. But if it's devoid of taking God's word and pouring it into one another's lives, it's missing the foundational piece. You're putting something above that that's not healthy. It works this way. It doesn't work another way. It works this way. That's how he demonstrates his love. He says, I didn't hold back on declaring anything that was profitable. And that, Jesse Wright, brings us to 2 Timothy 3.16. There's the, there's the text, right? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture. So is all scripture theonoustos? That means God breathed. Did God breathe out all scripture? Well, yes, he did. All of it's profitable. Sometimes we come to parts of scripture and we're not exactly sure how that works, but it's but it's all God breathed. And this is where the chat the Catholic Church is going to ride for eons. So I won't belabor this, but tradition, the magisterium, the Pope himself. Or two popes at one time. One pope is kind of retired. You can't really retire. But uh, whatever. However it works out in space and time. None of them are theonoustos, are they? Scripture alone is God breathed. Scripture alone is the foundation of our ministry. Scripture alone is how we know the word of God. So God took men, and then Scripture tells us that they were they were bore along, they were carried along, they were pharaohed along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the picture, the imagery there is like a sailboat with wind setting uh, setting open the sails and bearing the sailboat along. That's how the Holy Spirit took took men and bore them along as they penned the Scriptures. It is God breathed. It is God's word, and we're to take God's word. And we're to use it in our ministry to rebuke one another, to rebuke the lost, to bring correction to life, and to train one another in righteousness. It's the only divine authority that we have. There is no other divine authority. Scripture alone is divine. It's the onustas, God breathed. There is no other uh, uh, component of life that is God-breathed. There's nothing else. There's no leaders among men. There's no tradition among the church. There's no church history. There's no magisterium. There's nothing else but Scripture that is God-breathed. That is our full and final authority, and it is the means with which we minister to one another and to which, with which we carry the gospel into the world. It is the means through which we lay hold of diligence in the Christian life. If our lives are to be diligently led before God, they are to be led by Scripture. And this is nothing new. The psalmist said the same thing. Psalm 40, listen to David. So this is not, uh, well, there was this tradition of the church, and then at some point the Reformation hit. Nothing really, nobody ever really paid attention to the Scripture being authoritative and God-breathed before the Reformation. Well, that's some sorry church history. And of course, it's bogus. But sometimes people think that way. And it's nonsense. But listen to David. Just listen to David in his context. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. Oh, Lord, you know, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken your faithfulness 
of your salvation. I have not sealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Now what he's talking about there is the word of God. That's not, uh, of course, David is, a, is, a, is a, one of the men that God divinely bore along. That's true. But listen to the language. He's taken God's word and he declares it into the congregation. And Paul ends up there saying that he taught in public and he taught house to house. And I, I promise not to, to tarry long and go on about this. It's very simple, really. We see that. We see it in the context here. We've been through it. He certainly taught in public. We see daily there in, in the, uh, Tyrannus's facilities there daily teaching. He taught daily any chance he had to in public. But he also taught house to house. And again, it's good to visit. It's good to fellowship. It's edifying uh, and fellowship in other contexts where we're just maybe talking more than, than teaching. And that's okay. And we're praying and we may do things in, in our, our fellowship time together in various contexts that don't revolve around teaching. That's Please don't misunderstand me. That's wonderful and healthy. And it can be very edifying. There's, there's room for those things. But Paul here, as he's saying that he went, he taught in public and he taught house to house. When he went house to house, they sat down and it was a very formal, in that regard, maybe an informal setting, but it was a formal teaching. So if there was a need for you ever in your family for me to come to your house and teach you something, if there's questions, please know that's an open door. Not that I don't want to see you or visit you or we can have other contacts or we can be together. Of course, that's wonderful. But let me just lay that out there. If there is a need, then let's address it. And we can come, just as Paul does here, and teach house to house. And men, I know there's lots of things to do, but that's why it's fruitful for us to get together and teach. Ladies, that's why you do a wonderful job of getting together and teaching. And that's what Paul is saying here. So visitation is good, and I know that much fruit can be brought, brought from that, but it's teaching uh, that Paul's addressing here. David Brainerd, the great uh, missionary to the American Indians. And by the way, Jonathan uh, Edwards wrote a biography on Brainerd, and it was excellent, so I would commend that to you. But Brainerd on his deathbed, he spent his time, he, he, he literally couldn't get out of bed, but he was, he was cognitive and he was able to think, and so he spent that time teaching a young native boy to read. And of course, he used the scripture. And so to his very last breath, even when Brandon was minimized to a bed, he was able to redeem the time and teach a little native boy there to read scripture that it might be fruitful and honoring in his life. Now, that's what it means in the uttermost to teach house to house and redeem the time. So let's learn from Paul and let's be encouraged and redeem the time, knowing that God equips us knowing that God opens doors, and knowing that God is central to why we minister. It's to his glory and to the good of the church.